Welcome to Self-Care with Doctors Sarah. I'm Sarah R. And I'm Sarah B. And today we're going to talk about therapy. This conversation is going to be a, a podcast doubleheader. Wait Indeed. till you see what we have in store. It's like a real one-two punch mental health podcast recording. Sarah, why don't you describe part of the reason why it's so timely? Um, therapy and the function of therapy is so timely right now in your life. Well, we've, we've mentioned therapy multiple times on this podcast as a really useful tool for part of self-care and mental health. And even though sometimes, you know, with therapy, you can still have a lot of struggles you know, in your life. And, and so it's not like that's, you know, a, a fix-all and be-all and end-all. And so, so we wanted to talk about kind of like our experiences with, with therapy, the good experiences and some of the bad experiences and how, you know, there's difficulties in, in the current setup of, of how therapy is delivered um, in both the U.S. and where I am in the U.K. And, and what this means and how you can try to, you know, hopefully it'll be helpful to people listening to you know, if, if they haven't had a good experience in therapy, how to maybe uh, try try again and, and maybe hopefully get different results and, and at any rate uh, illuminate some of the, the positives, a lot of the positives, and, and some of the struggles that we've had in our own personal access to therapy throughout the last, I don't know, what, five, seven years? Yeah, I'm coming up on um, the 10-year therapy anniversary. Yeah. Sarah, is the, Sarah is the single reason I saw a therapist to begin with, too. Like, way, we're talking, I don't is know, that true? first year grad school. Yes, because because it was imposter syndrome. Okay, so this was it. Oh, yeah. It was our first year oh, of yeah. grad school, and or my first year. You were a second year. And you were saying, Sarah, you have the imposter syndrome. You should see a therapist. I think you told me this, like, 14 times. And and first, as, as longtime listeners of the podcast know, because I'm sure this is in the very first episode on imposter syndrome. I didn't believe you. I thought you were making up a diagnosis out of the out of your head. I right. didn't think it was a real thing, like a real condition that people have. And right. then once I Wikipedia did, I, I believed you a little bit more. And yeah. and <laughs> and then and then I saw a therapist. But it took it really took Sarah telling me to see a therapist like ten to fourteen times to take away the stigma because I had a lot of stigma. I think you know I was like, well, I'm not depressed. I'm not. You know, I don't need a therapist. I, you know, I didn't really, you know, at this time, uh, think that oh, that I need a therapist. You know, if I'm feeling, you know, anxiety about the imposter syndrome, I thought I was just the real deal, the real imposter. There's no, right. there's no therapy needed. I'm they wow, need to just Sarah, pick you me. You said past tense. You said thought. I thought. They need, really to, they need to remove me from the academic world, you know, because of my own ineptitude. Therapy. Do you feel is this past tense for you now? No, you I still have the imposter syndrome. No, I still have the imposter syndrome. Yeah, I, but it's thinking that you're happen. the true imposter. You said thought. You said past tense, and I'm going to hold you to that. <laughs> well, we can get to maybe. <laughs> we need another future episode on current <laughs> imposter thoughts because they ring strong right now. But, yeah, I, I, yeah. No, but, yeah, so, like, I really, at that time, though, certainly, I remember writing a letter to Valerie Young that started, I know you've done a lot of, research on the imposter syndrome, but I just really think that I actually am the real imposter. This is how the email started. It was something right. like that. It was so ridiculous, and I realized she would read it and realize it was ridiculous, and so I didn't send it, but I still felt it. Now I, like, know that there is a thing that's the imposter syndrome. So, I mean, that's, like, the, you know, baby steps on this one. So that was the impetus to go to therapy. That was the impetus to, really to go to therapy. from imposter syndrome at the time. Indeed. Indeed, that, that sure was, and it's all thanks to you, Sarah. Oh, 
I'm so happy to hear that. Um, when I think back to my pre-therapy life, when dinosaurs roamed the earth, um, I had I had really weird ideas about mental health. So this was like first year of grad school. I finally was miserable enough that it was interfering with my functioning. I think I had kind of struggled with depression as an undergraduate too, but um, I had strange ideas about what, in particular, what role like a romantic partner should play in my mental health. I think it. So at the time, I thought well, why would I need to see somebody for this? Like, this is a role that, like, loved ones play or whatever. Like, in this support capacity, loved ones are there to help you, like, untangle these thoughts and so on. And, like, to Mm -hmm. a certain extent, that's true. But I had to eventually have a partner say explicitly the extremity of your um, distress and the duration of your distress is outstripping my ability to help you. And at the time, I thought that, that that meant he wasn't a very good boyfriend, like this particular partner. But he had experience in mental health um, and was training to become a, a mental health practitioner himself, like at the time. And so he had language for it that I didn't have then. Mm-hmm. And he was he was right. I mean, I was angry at him at the time because I thought, mm-hmm. like, what a... Like, it, this, my partner's really laying down on the job or whatever. Um, but looking back, that's that's very silly. Like, people are only human and absolutely you can max out um, a person's ability to help you, um, especially a, a friend or loved one who's not like trained to to help, yeah. right? Or like with mental health stuff. Yeah. So it was he who said you need to go into therapy, and um, I think that's what you should do. And it, that's why I made my first appointment. And also the reason I thought I was there, I like I, it was partially because I was just miserable and I didn't quite know why. And then also like my relationship wasn't working for other reasons and I didn't quite know why. But that was just kind of the tip of the iceberg, the part that was um, conscious to me about what was going on. But underneath the surface of the ocean was all of the other stuff that informs how I react in times of stress. Um, The things that I've learned are okay to say and not say and all kinds of other like unconscious biases that inform how I behave, how I feel about my body, like all of that stuff was kind of below the surface at the time. But peeking above the surface of that, of the ocean, just the tip of the iceberg was like, oh, for some reason I'm miserable. And that was kind of the beginning. And I, I guess there'll be time for us to give like a, a piece of advice, maybe like therapy advice. Um, I feel like this is a good time to share mine because it was so relevant that first time. So what my partner said to me at the time was that you should go back for your second appointment. Go back Mm -hmm. the second time is a piece of advice I've given to almost everybody um, who's starting with therapy because oftentimes that first appointment, kind of regardless of the therapist, him or herself, it could be, or the therapist themselves, it could be that they are just sitting listening to you and just the the fact of saying aloud um, these really scary things that are in your heart can be extremely distressing. You'll be um, like tearful and maybe embarrassed because you're tearful and distressed because you're hearing aloud these things that you don't really want to admit to yourself or whatever, and it's awful. And then there's a part of you that thinks like, well, forget this. <laughs> like, this is nightmarish. And it, I, mm-hmm. I don't feel like it helped, right? Mm-hmm. I don't feel like it helped because it just made me unhappy to think about it. And so his advice at the time was go back the second time. Because I think that's really key. Yeah. 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 Because I, I mean, I had, I didn't, I did go back the second time. I think with ease, mainly because of you again, because you had spoken high praises about therapy. Mm-hmm. But it's still for me what I found 
was it still didn't work necessarily with the first two therapists I saw. Yeah, talk about that. And and so I think there's two things here. One is I've seen like you, I've seen a lot of people go to therapy once and say it's not it's not for me, it didn't help. Even maybe once or twice, it's not for me, it didn't help. Or even, you know, maybe it's five times they went or six times they went and it, it didn't help. So I've, I've seen this on like kind of not just, I think it's really important like what you said to go back the second time. But I think even still people like myself can go, I went like 15 times and I still was like, this is a kind of helpful maybe, mm-hmm. you know. And then uh, just through a series of circumstance, one was access, which we'll get to, so I didn't have access to see the first therapist I saw, so I had to switch. And then the second therapist I saw, they, there was a high turnover in the, in the university system, and so they like left the university system, so then I got shunted to a third person. So I just kind of happened along. I was just kind of yeah. being like tossed between therapists due to not my decision. But because of that, I'm really thankful because the third parasite the third therapist I saw was excellent and and it was such a night and day difference it's like after the first session or two with her I was like oh this is why therapy is important and this is why it's helpful what was it about her I don't know for me it just it just uh therapy is obviously very individual relationships so you know as uh as you remember, Sarah, I saw your therapist the first time. It just I didn't have the same connection that you do with her, which is a very strong connection. No, no, Sarah, one of my many therapists. Well, you know, <laughs> anyway. But, but you, you, you would highly recommend her, and I sure, think sure. you should. You know, and then, but, uh, and, and it wasn't that she was a bad therapist. I liked her. It's just I didn't see the difference until I saw someone who fit with my style. And, mm-hmm. and so, and I think what I needed out of it was um, the therapist I eventually saw uh, Rue Wilson, she was very more, what was it, a skills-based therapist, so she gave yeah. me homework, you know, so I remember the first session, she, like, made me watch a movie, uh, Touching the Void. I remember this, yeah. Yeah, Touching the Void, and then we talked about it, and, because I was going through a lot of things, my dad had just died, and, and um, you know, a, a whole bunch of things, and so it was kind of this, this, movie really hits on adversity carrying on in the face of adversity physical mental everything and then you know so I watched that we talked about it then she gave me some meditation cds on suffering and meditating while in suffering loop thoughts and and it was just she was so like I felt like I was getting things that were really effective tools and it was more than just me telling her things or her telling me advice it was really she was very active, and I think I liked that, whereas the previous two therapists was more talk therapy, and I just, you know, say kind of what, you know, what's going on, and they maybe comment on it, and we talked about catastrophizing thoughts and, and other things, you know, but it just wasn't as helpful to me as, as having kind of multiple angles, like we did, you know, medit- like in therapy sessions of meditation, she gave me homework, I, she gave me books to read, you know, she would just pull them off her shelf and be like, here, take this home and, and read it. And, and everything she gave me was really helpful and, and, and some to more helpful than, than others, but still it was just, I think that style of therapy really resonated with me. And um, I've actually sent a lot of people to her uh, who had failed with other therapists and they you know, also really liked her. So I think it, what I always tell people is you have to try another therapist if if you you know if you've gone several times you know three four or five times whatever and it's not working first go back the second time because I don't think you can tell whether a therapist is good um, after the first you know maybe even two times so but if you've gone like four 
five times and it's not working and you're thinking of stopping therapy, then my advice is go see another one. Like try to try to find another one. And and now I have like so all told I think also two therapists in the UK and one I'm I don't really care for too much and one I think is excellent. So, you know, there is just such a difference, you know, in kind of the what what is out there in terms of therapy styles, what's gonna work well with you and that's gonna be different for everyone. And so that's hard because you're in a mental, like typically you're not seeking therapy when everything's going great. And you're just like trying to get in a, you know, keep in a stable place. That's not when you're reaching out to therapy. You're kind of at the last straw when you like, especially first reach out to a therapist for the first time. And then, like you said, Sarah, if you go and you're, it's very intense, it's very talking about feelings is hard. You know, you might cry, you might feel silly. And then yeah. you think this isn't helping, and then you just stop going, and then and you might really not get the full benefit of what could be a great therapeutic relationship. That's really true. That happened to me both times that I've um, found therapists too. Like the first time in Boston, and then the second time in Seattle. The first person I saw, it wasn't very good, um, mm-hmm. and I went probably like five or six times. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think of how one could identify it at the time, especially if you if you haven't experienced like what good therapy feels like and you can't really identify it I would say like yeah feeling like really misunderstood with like a comment or comments that you make uh when that happens like one time it's okay but then um I found that when that happened like a couple times and then I thought I'm really having I'm like struggling to connect with this person you know and I I found myself thinking like that's not it at all Mm -hmm. so kind of like regardless of the skill level of like these two therapists there was something that felt like very off and I wish I could quantify it better than that but of course it's very hard to do especially if you haven't ever experienced like helpful therapy before because you might think to yourself I guess this is just what it is yeah well that's what I thought I mean and my first two therapists were not that bad as what you're talking about I would say my first two therapists were good you know, it, it just wasn't excellent, if that makes sense. So, like, I've had a sure. bad therapist experience, which is more in line with what you're talking about. I feel like I explain that I'm, you know, anxious or I feel this rising tide of anxiety, and she's just like, well, you know what you need to do? Get on with it. You know, and I'm like, well, that's not oh helpful. You know, it's so, helpful. <laughs> so I feel like there's, <laughs> you know, there's different levels of bad therapy, and, and I feel like there's truly bad therapy which I feel is maybe easy to identify but then there's kind of mediocre therapy where it's not either you or the therapist it's just like a not the best fit if that makes sense yeah so it's like the therapist is probably doing a fine job they're you know empathetically listening and things are going along and you feel like it's okay you know you feel like it's a bit helpful and and even fairly helpful you know but it's just different and I don't know how to describe it it was just like the difference was really highlighted only once I experienced a therapy relationship that I was like, oh, right, that's that's what people are talking about, you know. Um, and I, I have no advice on how to identify that as a first, you know, time person going to therapy. Like I said, I was just kind of tossed around before it just happened upon me. But I would just say try if you're thinking, you know, if things are seeming kind of mediocre to bad, I would try a new person. We were talking earlier um, before we started recording about how it's even harder to feel understood or like your full humanity is seen if you you have a marginalized identity of some kind. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, so like misdiagnosis, for example, mm-hmm. like happens more often for some people seeking out therapy than others. That includes mm-hmm. like people of color who receive different diagnoses, like when mm-hmm. presenting the same symptoms. Um, and then also, if you're struggling with racism, you might feel like that if you are seeing a white therapist that they just mm-hmm. can't like can't mm-hmm. can't get it. Yeah, they can't relate. Like maybe they could say the things that would like help in part um, but you wouldn't feel like as deeply understood as you might otherwise so that's like an additional additional challenge and then Sarah you were saying that you had read some other facts right yeah so I read that um, people who uh, say have poor health or are um, in an economic disadvantage in a you know in some level of poverty that often depression is undiagnosed so for example so a therapist sees someone who is, you know, maybe in dire financial straits, you know, having trouble, maybe homeless, maybe, you know, uh, not able to uh, have stable food, uh, stable shelter. And then the depression that could be real and physical just is pushed off on, of course they're depressed, you know, this is a stressful situation. Same with if someone, say, has, you know, cancer or a, a strong physical diagnosis, maybe they also have depression, like a, you know, not just from the circumstance, but true depression, you know, depression. And yeah. and it's just not, it's pushed off as being, well, of course you're depressed because you have cancer or, or whatnot, instead of actually treating it as a, as a physical condition that could be helped by medication or, you know, seeking all those avenues out. And, and so I think that's important for us as a society to recognize is that we, it's, it's like, and I think in this article they said, yeah, it's when, you know, white you know, middle, high-income students come in for therapy and are depressed, then they give them, you know, then they actually treat their depression. But for a lot of other cases here, then people just, like, pass off that depression on, you know, uh, rationalize it due to circumstance, and that's not helpful. And so you have a lot of undertreated, undiagnosed cases that could be helped by either therapy, uh, CBT, medication, you know, and other uh, other t- resources. How frustrating it must have been, Sarah, to find a therapist uh, in Scotland and then have that person, like, not be able to be helpful to you and to have, like, very limited control. I know. It was really stressful because I'm dealing with it now. She's still a, technically my therapist. I don't see her that frequently. I went to my primary care doctor because it's through the NHS system that I'm seeing her. First off, I, you know, I couldn't see anyone for six months or seven months. There was that, it was, I think, a seven-month wait list in the end. Uh, then when I finally did see her, again, kind of four or five, six times, I was like, I don't know, it's kind of helpful, maybe helpful. But then it started really just becoming clear that it's not helpful, and particularly some statements that she made, which I'll get into in the next podcast episode. But T- I went back... meltdown. Entitled <laughs> meltdown. Wait for it. Um, but... <laughs> But, so I went back to my GP and asked to switch. I like I got to the point where I was like, I want to see someone else, and I knew that it was difficult in the system to see a different specialist, you know, uh, in the NHS system. And so, I, but I was like, I really, it's just this is clearly not a good therapy relationship. And I went to the GP, and he was like, I'm sorry, there's not really an option. And and I was just so like, awful. I don't know what to do. You know, I mean, I can go pay someone outside of my insurance, but I don't have an option 
to see anyone else within my insurance other than the person that was first given to me, which I think is a horrible system setup, Agreed, you know, yeah. especially for therapy where the personal relationship is really important. And and we see this also, you know, I don't know if you have six month wait lists at universities, but you do have like maybe four to six week common wait lists in the U.S. at university uh, to first be seen by a therapist. You have problems, as we mentioned, like how I how I got bumped between so many therapists was just due to high turnover um, at the university. And so there's a problem with continuity of care. What if you actually get a therapist you really like and then they leave? Or, or say you're just starting a therapy session, you've had three sessions and then they leave and then you're shunted to another therapist in the university system and then you have to go through the background and all that. You know, it's, it, it can be very difficult. And then access to funding of mental health and insurances was mandated by the ACA, but it's still not, you know, at the level that might be needed, and it's under attack now, of course, with healthcare uh, being an issue that we'll see what happens in the U.S. anyway. And then, of course, in the U.K., like I said, it, I've, I've also struggled with the same issues. Let's talk about um, uh, one, like, particular academic solution that we had, like, within our department, which was basically because of, of you and I, Sarah, um, although, like, the need for it was was uh, alleviated in part because Harvard changed their policies. But like when Sarah and I were graduate students, there was a a policy at Harvard, first of all, that your insurance only covered 12 sessions a year. Mm -hmm. And that was for Mm in-network. Like so if you were seeing somebody at Harvard, the turnover at Harvard was really high and the wait list for very long. Mm -hmm. Also the emphasis like within Harvard necessarily because of that limited time was just like to restore a person to functionality. Yeah, and then get them out. Person. So if you wanted to see somebody once a week for longer than three months to, like, restore yourself from, like, a crisis mode, you know, hopefully, if you had, like, longer-term goals or something which was harder to, to grapple with and what you yeah. could accomplish in three months, then you were just, like, really out of luck. I ended up taking a loan from my parents to, to pay for therapy, basically, like, in graduate school, but that's obviously not an option for everybody. So we, we argued to the chair of our department that there should be like kind of an emergency fund for mental health. That particular department chair was like very amenable to that idea. Not not so, just mental health. Also, if you remember, it was also for physical health. So like we yeah. had um, high co-pays for seeing out of network specialists, and not all specialists for students were in the university system. Uh, we had um, uh, yeah, like students with upwards of three thousand dollars a year just in co-pays on Harvard's insurance, which was pretty great by comparison to most universities and still you're paying 10% or you know or so of your of your stipend your graduate stipend on co-pays you know not even paying the full bill uh, yeah so we argued for this emergency medical fund, medical fund which covered both uh, you know any health mental health physical health expense that was not covered by the insurance company it was not seen by any professors in the department it was mediated through a secretary who we would submit our receipts to. There was, it was, I think, $15,000 a year that was set aside for any student in the program. I think it actually just started with a $15,000 fund and we didn't use it up, you know, as a grad student community. And then it just rolled over once it went out, like the chair and the, you know, the, uh, Charles Alcock, the director of the uh, the whole CFA agreed that that would just kind of be kept going after the first round of it. 
uh, I think it took, say, three years for it to be used up the first time. But that was really great that our department was able to piece together those funds that were not, yeah, that even in, in a case where one had, compared to most people, very good health insurance, it was still inadequate, and they put together that emergency fund. We put a lot of hard work into that. So, like, as a a model for that, of course, we were at, like, a very wealthy institution, so it's not possible everywhere. But um, in order to make that case, you know, if other students wanted to make the same case, we we gathered a lot of information, Mm -hmm. um, like, about what our peer institutions offered uh, in terms of insurance, and we were, like, really experts in um, what our university offered. And then we also had heard a lot from from our fellow students. Mm-hmm. Like about what needs were being met and which ones weren't. So, so what we presented to the department was kind of like a coherent picture, with kind of an estimate too of how much would be necessary, and also like how what what frequency you're talking about, right? Like how mm-hmm. how many students would likely take advantage of it, right? And like under what circumstances, and that ended up being something that we accomplished. I was really proud of that. I was too. Yeah. And yeah, so so there's a whole bunch of things because also Harvard had a cap on medical equipment. So people say that maybe needed an insulin pump wouldn't be able to get one, you know, through Harvard because the cap was, you know, $1,500 a year. There was a whole bunch of things that you only, if you didn't reach the limits of the health insurance, you thought it was great. And then once you saw the actual limit, you're like, but how is this possible? (laughs) You know, So, so I think, and then, yeah, so we did some research on, peer institutions, we brought up some needs of, uh, you know, within our department and, yeah, put that together as a proposal. And it was, thankfully, we were met with very supportive faculty on this, and this was instituted in our department. We did want to mention one thing more is just that, you know, there is this unmet mental health crisis in academia that oh, I'm is... Oh, so glad you remember is, that, yeah. It's not really talked about a lot, and there, because there is still, I think it's getting better, but there is still this stigma on, on therapy, and and a, like higher than the normal population, academics have depression and uh, you know burnout and anxiety, and uh, I think I read also grad students have a much higher rate of suicidal thoughts and and intentions than the normal population. And and then, you know, as we've talked about, the resources of the student mental health services is sometimes inadequate to meet these needs, you know, and so this is, I don't really know what to say good about this other than we need to be aware of it, you know, and supportive (laughs) of it, of people in our institutions and in the universities at large. I've heard it referred to as like a mental health crisis within the academy, and that sounds right to me. We'll link to a Guardian article about that in particular that was about the prevalence of mental health um, mm-hmm. crises within academia, but it's also like coupled with an attitude within academia that if you are depressed or if you're like struggling in the program, frankly, like in any way, like physically or mentally, then like maybe you're kind of just not a very good scientist and maybe you don't. Yeah, know you can't hack it. Yeah, you can't you hack can't it. Like it there's so. some people who just can't do it because of blah. You know, I've heard this directly by a professor that, well, you know, I think they likened it. They said, well, just as people in wheelchairs can't play basketball, some people can't do academia. That was like a sentence out of someone's mouth, you know. And <laughs> yeah, it was... Very typical, typical, yeah. Right, and that's this attitude of just like, well, if you're not healthy physically and mentally at all times and willing to put in 100 hours of work a week just because you want to, because you love science so much that yeah. that's all you want to do, yeah. And and God forbid you're depressed about something or stressed <laughs> about the job cycle because you just should be so excited about everything. 
then yes, then and then like not... work that work is actually like the medicine. Yeah, yeah. You, yeah. You, do more you work. You that before too, like yes. Immerse yourself in your research. After my dad died, a professor was like, "Well, I don't, you know, I think you should just immerse yourself in your research." <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I, I, I laugh about it. <laughs> it yeah. was like at the time, I was just like looking at him like he was an alien. <laughs> you know? It's like a laughably twisted view of just like human functioning in the world yeah um, so that probably doesn't help um yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh, so for those reasons it's just like such a weird space it feels like a room where the windows haven't been opened in like a very long time um yeah. like stale room is often how academia feels to me where you feel like there's just no it's just like such a weird ecosystem without much of a link to the reality of being a human. And um, it gets really kind of like amplified and repeated over and over so that then people like hide mental illness. Mm-hmm. Um, Indeed. Yeah. Or, or it comes out be- because it's not being like dealt with. It comes out in t- like anger or resentment or, or other things. I, frankly, I think like bullying or like mm-hmm. other like really shitty behaviors, um, not to excuse it. But uh, I guess that leads me to one of my two gems. Mm. I would say, like, really valuable gems from therapy that have received, like, the most use and that I, like, tend to break out the most often. (laughs) Although I keep, like, little booklets in my wallet of mental health. I have a few, like, mental health zines, and we'll link to those (laughs) (laughs) that I use, like, over and over again when when students and, and other academics come to me with problems related to depression and so on. The first piece of advice I was going to give is that you can't change how you feel about a situation as much as you might wish to. Like, you could say to yourself, like, my number one choice would be just not to feel unhappy. Mm. Or my number one choice would be to not feel depressed. But that's not a choice. Or not to feel angry. Um, But that's not a choice. The choice is to deal with it in a way that you can control, or to deal with it in a way that you can't control. So that you could you could pick to try to deal with it, for example, when you're sober, even if it's like very hard to do, or to make yourself uncomfortable in a situation enough to say what really is going on, or to change the situation in some way that you have control over. That's one choice, and the other choice is to ignore that it's a problem and pretend like it's not there, and then it'll come out anyway, like in the form of resentment or anger, or you drink and then it'll come out, you know, like, um, so it was kind of a a way of acknowledging that denial um, is not a long-term viable solution. Mm -hmm. So it's not really a solution at all. And so that it would come out sort of regardless. And I've really found that to be true. A really good piece of advice. And then also um, very linked to that is that your feelings have important information um, Mm. also. So they're not, they're kind of like good intel, I guess, as my brother would say. (laughs) Um, They're like good intel. So if you're feeling really upset about a situation or you're feeling like really hurt or you're feeling really angry then that is really useful information for you to try to understand what's going on so that instead of considering feelings as like a weakness for example or just like a real pain instead it's kind of like critical data and should be sort of considered as such hopefully in a non-judgmental way as non-judgmentally as possible one piece of advice that I really found helpful for me I'm not one to meditate every day Mm -hmm. but meditation 
in and of itself, I found to be a really helpful tool to learn. And so I particularly valued some of the meditation uh, routines and some of the the types of meditation that my therapist uh, taught. And and she gave me, like I I mentioned earlier, this CD that I have now shared with lots of people uh, by Marsha Linehan. And let me see if I can pull up the name of it, but it's about suffering and it's and it's uh, guided meditations. It's called From Suffering to Acceptance, I think. And what it is is, because often like when you're in a state of real despair and maybe something horrendous has happened in your life, it can be really hard to just meditate, you know, and to even to just count your breaths can be really hard. And so one of the meditations I remember being particularly helpful was uh, Marsha, in these CDs, she has kind of like a five to ten minute intro to the meditation, and then the meditation itself is only five or ten minutes. She like dings the bell and you do it. You do the exercise that she just taught you. So there's like ten or so different exercises, and the ones that I remember the most, um, well, this one in particular was a thought conveyor belt, and so you just like all of the stressful, unhappy, upset thoughts you have, you imagine them coming towards you as they come they're on this conveyor belt and instead of like going into your brain you just filter them into different buckets so you know that might be a fear thought that's a catastrophizing thought that's a judgmental thought that's a you know well that's another judgmental thought you know or now I'm judging myself for being you know not good at meditation and you know and so yeah. you just kind of <laughs> you kind of have this conveyor belt of, of thoughts or you know that you know, life will never be better again, you know, well, that's a catastrophizing right. thought, you know, or, right. you know, you know, you, so you just kind of label them, and it kind of takes you one step away from your thoughts to actually observing them, rather than just taking them and not being able to, you know, just having them thrust upon you, so to speak, yeah. and so I found that really helpful, because when I was in my worst States, I wasn't I wasn't able to just like count breaths or whatever. It was too there's too many overwhelmingly negative thoughts happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I found all of the little meditation exercises helpful. Some of them are just breathing, and I can't just sit there and meditate. I have to at least count breaths or count in in and out. Uh, but then the other thing that I found helpful with therapy, and again, it's so funny to me to talk so much about meditation because I don't meditate by and large, in my daily life, <laughs> but I, I found it really helpful in, in times of dire need, and, and that's doing like guided meditations with your therapist and recording those for future use, because your therapist knows you more than someone on YouTube who's doing a guided meditation, you know, so that they can bring in aspects of your home or your family or, you know, places that you really like, so uh, one guided meditation that my therapist did was to this place in Montana, this beautiful uh, bed and breakfast that my friends run that's right up by the Canadian border uh, overlooking Glacier National Park. It's just beautiful mountains. And, you know, she did a whole guided meditation of where I was like, you know, I was sitting in this chair in her therapy office and that chair was flying towards Montana and we're going over the country and we come back down, you know, come down in Montana and then look around and, you know, you see maybe your friends over in the distance, you wave to them, you look at the mountains, You what colors are there, you're breathing in the colors, you have your feet on the grass and you're feeling the wetness of the grass and there's maybe a stream there and you know, inviting who else, who else might be in there. And I think I said, you know, I see my dad. And so she started talking about that. And just, I mean, it was pretty, like, 
doing something that's a very personal guided meditation can be really helpful and and I found that recording those as well for like future times of distress were really helpful because yeah they know you better and so it's different than just some I don't know waves and beach meditation on YouTube yeah, that right. you can find you know which which can be helpful too but you know I I think I think those two things were really helpful as well as I do recommend touching the void as far as just a movie about uh you know persevering in in the case of adversity because I felt like I couldn't go on and watching this video I was like how did this guy go on and it really did help so so those would be the two things like kind of in terms of this is not advice that that she said I'm drawing a blank on that but um those were two tools that I found really useful yeah I I just respond like so differently now to uh, I don't know if conflict is the right word I haven't had that much practice um but to my own thoughts I guess and like the way that I deal with them is so different now than it was when I was like 21 I used to give like the silent treatment and stuff (laughs) I mean this is like some (laughs) like unrecognizable um stuff and it's just totally different now totally different and I feel like it I definitely would not be where I am without it. My therapist came to my PhD defense. Didn't that happen for you too, Sarah? Yes. Well, yeah. and I acknowledged her in my thesis. Yes. Like there is a solid, solid line of acknowledgement there. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It's like there, but for the grace of the therapist, like go I. Yes. <laughs> Honestly, yeah. though. Okay, let's let's close out this episode. Wrap that up. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening to Self Care with Dr. Sarah. You can find us on Twitter, although, as we'll be talking about soon in the Meltdown portion, we've been taking a Twitter, a strong Twitter break. Um, but we're on Twitter at Dr. Sarah Care. That's our Twitter handle, and Drs. Plural, DRS. And then for the links to all of the articles and references that we mention here, you can find all of that stuff on our Tumblr. That's where we curate all of the things that we reference um, mm-hmm. in our episodes, and that's at Dr. Sarah Care, DRS. S-A-R-A-H-C-A-R-E dot Tumblr dot com. Um, and please email us too. Um, you know, if you have any suggestions for episodes or or any yeah. thoughts about therapy or about the episode, we love receiving emails from you guys. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, rate and review. Like, we get yeah. so excited and, like, send them to each other yes. when we have a review on iTunes. Yeah, it's, it's, it's <laughs> the small things in life. Uh, it's very easy to please us. So, so you know, send us send us your thoughts. Uh, we love hearing from from people who found the podcast useful. And now on to the next recording, Sarah. Sounds good. All right, Sarah's out. <laughs> Sarah out. <laughs>